Between the kids being home and hosting, everything in our house gets used up in summer. With Instacart, I can save money by stocking up on all my favorite summer brands. I save time by getting everything delivered in as fast as an hour. And I save myself a sink full of dirty dishes by stocking up on paper plates for the annual summer cookout. Save more on summer essentials? Spend more time enjoying summer. Add summer to cart. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I share my recent appearance on the Safety Culture Solutions Podcast, where I discuss physical and psychological safety in the workplace. Today, having joining us, we have Jonathan H. Westover, Ph.D. He is award-winning U.S.-based Amazon.com number one best-selling author, ranked number one HR innovation and future of work global thought leader influencer from Thinkers 360, ranked in the top 30 in management and organizational culture from Global Gurus, entrepreneur, management consultant, teacher, and research academic based in Orem, Utah. He serves on a host of nonprofit community and association boards and committees and has received numerous awards for his teaching, research, and service in the community. Dr. Westover is a professor and chair at organizational leadership in the Woodbury School of Business at Utah Valley University, academic director of the UVU Center for Social Impact and the UVV Sim Lab, and faculty fellow for ethics and business life in the Center for the Study of Ethics. Dr. Westover has been published widely in academic journals, books, and practitioner publications. He is a regular visiting faculty member at other international guidance graduate and business programs. Jonathan received his Bachelor of Science degree in in sociology, research, and analysis with minors in management and Korean, of all things, and his Master's of Publication, both at Brigham Young University. He received his PhD in sociology at the University of Utah. And Dr. Westover, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join us. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I really appreciate the invitation. Absolutely. Is it okay? to? Can we go by with how about John and Mike this morning? Does that work for you? That's perfect. Hey, Rick, can you give me just a little more volume on my end, please? What, and you know, I've had the chance. We chatted a little bit before, the emails, et cetera. Thank you again for being on the show. And, and I got to ask, we had a lot of different guests. I got to check my notes. I think this is the first time I've had a guest that had a minor in Korean. Kind of, how did that come about? <laughs> um, you know, so years ago, uh, I lived for two years as a missionary for my church in South Korea. Uh, so I learned the Korean language wow. at that time. 
And then I had the chance to go back and work uh, for LG Electronics in their corporate organizational development office. Um, so both as a service missionary for my church, as well as uh, working, you know, in a corporate environment, I had a chance to hone my my Korean skills. And so when I was back at university, I decided I should uh, minor in that and uh, continue with my studies. Wow. Well, great for you. And you're, you're highly regarded. You're well published. Great article in Human Capital Magazine, the interview you had with Josh Burson about some like Amazon, was, I think it was Microsoft and the major players out there. Because HR just, I got to be candid. I'm an old beat up white haired safety culture guy. And I really, like, but as soon as I start talking about HR, I kind of almost view it like voodoo because there's a lot of subtleties in, in it. And if you don't, if you're not a true practitioner, that whole HR component can, that can be a real challenge for the company not to even realize it. Is that correct? Oh, for sure. I think HR is super complex. Um, there, it's a combination of a lot of fairly straightforward, simple things that need to be done consistently and done well and executed well every day. Um, but then there's, you have the bigger picture strategic elements of people management and organizational leadership that falls into the HR arena that's really, really important uh, to, to carefully consider and, and figure out how we can best implement within organizations. And that's a little bit more difficult. So ultimately I spend a lot of my time trying to help students uh, as well as companies better understand their people management processes, how to be more effective and ultimately drive uh, value in the marketplace through their people in the organization. That's excellent. And part of what I've seen is so critical and the world of safety culture and data and HR as well as that personal accountability responsible for your actions. One of my friend who was HR director for a very large company and they had about 4,000 people, they went to do a intervention with one of their employees and they're gonna put him on this 90 day plan and you know, here's your goals and this is why we're here and here's some of your success factors. He got so offended and incensed within 20 minutes became a termination because it was, he refused to accept it. And he was an older gentleman. He'd been there forever. The, nobody's treated this way before. You really don't understand how good I am. So it all became about the me conversation. And to their credit, they, they handled it exceptionally well. For our viewers today, I think we have some active mice in parts of the building. So everyone, everyone you think there's a thunk or something, that's not me taking a nap. So please bear with us. So, and after the break, just here's a teaser. We're gonna be talking about Dr. Westover, I think it's his brand new book. Here's a teaser, The Alchemy of Alchemy. There we have truly remarkable leadership. And it's gonna, I think it's gonna become a must read for all of our viewers. So as we look at safety culture, kind of that 50,000 foot look, is, is there some good indications or attributes that you, you can observe when you've got a positive safety culture? Yeah, I think ultimately, if we're trying to drive safety within an organization, uh, I see it in a, a couple of primary ways. Uh, one is physical safety. And so that's often what we are referring to when we talk about safety culture. Let's create a, a culture where everyone knows that they're mutually accountable mm -hmm. uh, for the physical safety of themselves and everyone around them within the workplace. But we also have psychological safety. Psychological safety is 
equally important and it goes hand in hand with physical safety. And the bottom line is if people don't feel psychologically safe to be able to speak up, to speak out, to challenge authority, to be able to raise a voice of warning if they notice something that's gone wrong, then a lot of times the physical safety issues can be left undone, especially if it requires them to challenge their boss or challenge someone else within the organization in order to bring people into alignment with physical safety standards. If they don't feel empowered to speak up and to speak out through a psychologically safe workplace environment, then you're going to see shortcuts taken. You're going to see people cutting corners and ultimately uh, physical accidents will happen. So the, that psychological safety, that's that component. Do they really feel comfortable raising their hand? Can they voice a concern? Is, is that's what you're referring to, doctor? Yeah, ultimately, it's about how comfortable I feel in the context of my team to be able to speak up, to speak out, to raise concerns. Uh, do I feel ultimately like if I speak up, I'm going to be punished uh, in some way, either directly or indirectly, sometimes even passive aggressively? Uh, or do I feel like people will accept my feedback and they'll pay attention to what I'm sharing so it can drive positive change for the team. And ultimately, a lot of times what happens in organizations, even when you have well-meaning managers, well-meaning leaders, even with good policies, practices, and procedures in place to try to ensure safety, that if ultimately I have a leader with a, more of a command control model to their leadership style, I'm not going to feel as comfortable speaking up or challenging them if and when I see problems. And that can then lead to looking the other way when I notice something that's problematic and instead of addressing it head on and ultimately trying to make things better. And to me, that, that readily fits in because one of the rants I'll get on on occasion with some of my clients, it's a nice rant, is if I see the big giant posters, safety is job one, we have a zero accident philosophy. Because in my experience, what I've seen, John, is that that inadvertently can stifle communication as well. I think having saying the right things, having a good narrative around safety is important. So yes. having a poster up, fine. Having things on the website, fine. Um, but it has to go beyond that, right? You have to be able to talk. You have to be able to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. And if I'm suggesting that safety is number one for us, but then I undermine that principle in my daily actions and behaviors and how I interact with my people, and ultimately, you know, I punish people who perhaps go slower, but are adhering to the safety guidelines. And I reward people who are cutting corners because they're you know, faster, more efficient. Of course, people are gonna go the direction of cutting corners and ultimately it's gonna undermine the safety of the, of the team. Absolutely correct. When you're talking about psychological safety, as my viewers know, I've had the honor, I've talked a lot about Deepwater Horizon over the years and the they had that explosion they had taken down about a one minute discussion they had two piping system and they should have been the same amount of psi in this case one read around 1300 psi the other line read zero so the engineers on the drilling platform they got one of the tool pushers there rastabouts trying to figure out what's going on the tool pusher says you know we had the same issue in argentina four years ago i slapped with a spud wrench and it reset and everybody kind of they didn't even nod their head. They kind of stood there, and so they went their own directions. After that unfortunate explosion of loss of life, 
when the, those engineers were standing with the tool pusher, when they interviewed him, no one had any idea what the tool pusher was talking about. But likewise, unfortunately, no one really felt comfortable enough to raise their hand and say, you know, I'm really confused how you think hitting this valve with a spud wrench is going to reset these dramatic differences in PSI on the two piping systems. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we need to create an environment where people really can challenge authority and speak up and speak out. And that goes contrary to how a lot of people see leadership. And they, they see that as a sign of weakness if they allow their you know people to be quote unquote insubordinate. Well, it's not insubordinate if people are trying to uh, hold each other accountable to, to maintain the quality standards, the safety standards that the organization has. Exactly correct. So if you've had a talk, chance to talk with many leaders of companies over the years, again, you're held in very high regard. So if there was one critical skill that you would ask them to work hard to practice every day as a leader to reinforce or enhance their positive safety culture, what would be that critical skill? I think in addition to being willing to be humble enough to nice. share power and control, what goes along hand in hand with that is that you have to develop the skill of active listening, that you actually have to truly be with the person that you're talking to and you're actually listening to and paying attention closely to them and what they have to say, that they feel seen, they feel heard. And ultimately, when people feel that way, you develop relationships of trust and people are more willing to speak up and to speak out. And so when when you see organizational cultures and dynamics where people aren't speaking up where people aren't uh they, they just don't they don't feel comfortable they don't feel safe and ultimately uh they they don't feel heard they feel like there's no point in raising an issue because no one's going to pay attention anyways and all it's going to do is hurt me you know i'm going to take some sort of political fallout from yeah. speaking up and so then people just uh muzzle themselves yeah. and i've been with some organizations and i'll observe someone's conversation and from the body language and the facial expressions you know the leader is already building his argument or his rebuttal in the middle of this person's conversation. And Jeff, my buddy, Odie Etmanship, and he has a great line, listen to learn versus listen to argue. Because unfortunately, I've seen so many of them that it becomes this point counterpoint instantly. And you're right, sooner or later, the person that raised their hand and started that conversation, they may not yeah. do it as much because they feel that it, their viewpoint's being discounted candidly. Yeah, exactly. And so th that really creates a toxic environment uh, yes. when you're not really listening and when you're just listening to be able to to have a debate and a counter argument. Uh, that's the antithesis of like active, positive listening strategies with with others that are around you. Okay, big question for you before we go to break. From your perspective, is it possible to actually measure the impact of having a positive safety culture, or is it more kind of organic? Well, I, I think certainly there's organic elements to safety culture, and we want to promote formal and informal approaches, right? I think anything to embed, to systematically embed and integrate safety culture throughout the organization is a positive. But absolutely, you can measure it. Uh, you should be tracking safety metrics. Uh, you know, if we're talking about physical safety, of course, you're going to be tracking things. You know, like understanding the frequency of injuries, the type of the type of in injuries, um, 
you know, where they tend to occur and what remediations are happening, what training you're doing to try to um, counterbalance it. And then you can show impact metrics on the improvement of that the behaviors after the trainings. And so these are just a couple examples of the types of things we need to be thinking about in terms of assessment outcomes, metrics, you know, just really trying to understand what you're accomplishing through the type of safety environment you're trying to create. Culture is harder to measure, but ultimately behavior speaks for culture, right? And so if, if you, if you have a lot of injuries in the workplace, then clearly there's not a safety culture there. And, and you need to not only think about policies, practices, procedures, safety measures, but you need to think about the broader cultural issues that are undergirding all of that. Exactly. One of my companies I'm working with right now, and I'm, I'm talking my ideas for metrics, I said, well, have you looked at the work package that go to the field for them to perform their activities? Have they been returned because they couldn't be implemented as written because steps were missing, et cetera? And then do you, do you track how many times that's occurred and if, do you have repeats? And he went, Oh, and he said, well, we haven't heard too much from the people in the field. And I said, well, if they keep seeing some of the same problems come out in the same work packages, odds are they're going to raise their hand again. I'm excited to announce the publication of my new book from HCI Press, Bluer Than Indigo Leadership, The Journey of Becoming a Truly Remarkable Leader. Early in my adult life, I learned about an Asian proverb that translates as bluer than indigo. If you think about the color indigo, it is a brilliant, deep, and vibrant blue. What some would call the bluest of blues. To have something that is bluer than indigo is rare and truly remarkable. Contrary to popular myth, there is no one-size-fits-all or cookie-cutter approach to effective leadership. There's no silver bullet, no secret sauce, no go-to model that will solve all of our problems. The truth is, great leaders have all had their unique strengths and flaws, and have all had to discover and then pave their own distinctive path in their life's journey to fulfill their leadership potential. Bluer Than Indigo Leadership will help you discover your own path and explore those ordinary, everyday actions that will help you respond to an uncertain future and produce extraordinary results for individuals, teams, and organizations. And we talk about the culture you want, and there's, you know, you, anymore you can't swing a dead cat without finding another book about leaders, and buy, and especially some of the books, you know, you buy, you buy this one, it's going to cure all your ills, it is the silver bullet, read my book, and you will be the best leader in the Western Hemisphere. I don't know how accurate that is, usually it kind of misses the target. Having said that, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls... Rick, if you can pull up that slide, there is a phenomenal new book out there, The Alchemy of Truly Remarkable Leadership, Ordinary Everyday Actions That Produce Extraordinary Results. I know I have your attention right now, and this is an Amazon number one bestseller. No joke. Fantastic reviews. People are just that gobbling this thing off the shelves electronically as quick as we can. So, Rick, let's bring John back up. And so we, we had to get a screenshot of the book for you, brother. But it's it, and I've had the opportunity. You. To, you bet. Thank you. And I've had the opportunity to read some of the snippets. And it's you've got number one. You got a great just 
it's easy to read. So your writing style, I think, is is accommodating even to the kind of lower tier people like me that you know, any word with more than about three syllables, I got to go you know, Google it or something. And one of the phrases that's in there, because I figure we got to tease the viewers a little bit, bluer than indigo. I think I got that correct. Can you give us some insight? Because that's a great phrase, by the way. <laughs> Yeah, and I really, I really do love that phrase. In fact, uh, I have another book that just came out about a month ago, and that's the title "Bluer Than Indigo <laughs> Leadership." So I, I take the uh, the concept that I, I introduce in the Alchemy book, and I uh, flesh it out and explore it more in in the book that was just released. Um, but "Bluer Than Indigo" comes from my um, background in Korean. So I had lived in Korea. I uh, love the culture, I love the people, I love the language. And very early on, I started to learn these proverbs, these Asian proverbs that were, uh, that come from ancient wisdom, Confucius, Buddhist teachings, and bluer than indigo was one of them. The idea here is that indigo is the bluest of blues. It's, it's, a, it's a word we don't use all that often. We don't describe colors as indigo all that often. Uh, but when you think about indigo, it's the bluest of blues, it's a deep, vibrant blue and you think about Asian culture and you think about the deference and the reverence that is given to uh, leaders, to teachers, to the elders, you know, to, to people high in society. And if we think about those individuals as indigo, so a teacher who's a remarkable person, they are indigo. Well, the whole idea behind this proverb is that we need to help people to become bluer than indigo or greater than ourselves. So if I'm a great teacher, cool. if I'm a great leader, the best indication of my greatness as a leader or a teacher is because I'm developing the people around me to surpass my own greatness. It, it brings with it kind of this, this humility and this servant leadership mentality that it's not all about me. In fact, I'm great not because of myself. I'm great because of the people around me. I'm great because <laughs> I'm able to empower and lift up the people around me and a rising tide lifts all ships, right? And so yes. the best the best surefire way for me to find personal individual success as a leader is to drive collective success of the team of the organization. Well, th that's intriguing. And there's unfortunately some leaders that would I think you're almost speaking Greek to them, maybe Korean, <laughs> is because there's, well, there's a recent Gallup poll. I'm a big fan of Gallup. I like to read that and some of the business journals out there. And they said out of 10 manager types, about one or two of them just have that natural ability. They're gargarious, they're outgoing, and they truly are indigo and, and they want to be bluer and indigo and they don't even know it yet maybe one or two more, they could probably get there with a little bit of mentoring and instruction, et cetera, and some good classes. And the balance of the 10, they probably gonna be a better fit somewhere else in the company versus trying to get all 10 to be the world's you know, greatest leaders. Yeah, I think we all have leadership capacity. I'm mm -hmm. a true believer that we're all leaders, whether we have a formal title or yes. we're, you know we have a position of responsibility in a hierarchy. Yes. So thinking about each and every one of us as a leader, I think we all have untapped potential as a leader. And unfortunately, because a lot of people don't have background or understanding of leadership principles, you know, we, we tend to mimic what we see other people around us doing. And if I only have bad examples around me of people go. who are authoritarian styles, who use command control methods, um, people who are more punitive, fear-based leaders, if that's the only thing I have to go off of, which frankly is 
a lot of what most people have to go off of, then I'm, I'm going, regardless of my intention, I'm going to end up perpetuating that kind of a style. Uh, even if, if I want to be, you know, a people centered leader. And so it's really important for us to just recognize where we're at and then adopt a growth mindset to continually grow into and develop into the leadership capacities that we have. I think we all have them within, within us. Uh, but sometimes we have to unlearn some things that are going to be problematic and are going to hinder our development. And then we need to, once we kind of break that down, then we can start to rebuild our foundation and rebuild into a more healthy direction and how we interface with the people around us. Excellent. And I think another topic in the book, I'll paraphrase a little bit, is that you want to have the capability for people can feel safe to fail. Something on that line? Yeah, absolutely. And this goes back to what we were talking about a little bit with the uh, with the psychological safety mm-hmm. conversation with safety culture. People need to feel safe to try new things and to challenge the status quo and even to fail. And I and I say failure in air quotes because ultimately it's not failure if we're learning from it. So I see it. I see something as a failure if. I try something, it doesn't work. I learn from that. I realize it doesn't work. And then I just do it again and it doesn't work. And I do it again and it doesn't work. That's failure. But if I do something, it doesn't work. And then I learn from it. I pivot. I, I iterate, I pivot, I try something new. I'm learning, I'm growing. That's not a failure. It's just a learning. It's just an opportunity to, to grow. And ultimately, I think that's that's what it comes down to when we create a psychologically safe environment that's safe to fail. We're, we're, we're saying it's safe to innovate. It's safe to experiment. It's safe to go through trial and error. And that's how all learning occurs. Perfect. I think there's a great quote from Thomas Edison. I haven't failed. I just found 10,000 ways that don't work. <laughs> so it's, I, mean, it, I believe it is how we view it. Candle John, that's what I see with some of the social media and even some of the news coverage. I just don't know how accommodating some society is. There was one just a few months ago, and this company came up with a way to be out in the ocean and gather up some of the plastics and be able to chew it up and turn it into new milk bottles. And so they went out with their big barge, and the first time they tried it, well, it didn't work as well as they wanted. And reporters are, and they says, well, with this failure... Do you think you'll ever try it again? And I'm going, oh my goodness. You know, so so yeah. that eight airs nationwide. And for I think for some people that might be a little daunting that you know, do they really want to be out there in front of that reporter explaining why they failed versus, you know, it's just an ongoing learning process. Yeah, exactly. It we we all go through that process continually. So we have to adopt a growth mindset. Perfect. We have to adopt an abundance mindset and we have to recognize that the name of the game if we're trying to innovate within organizations is to create an environment where people feel safe to try new things, to pivot to to iterate and ultimately through that experimentation you can come to new positive solutions. So fall forward, fail fast. You know, if we're going, if we're going to have things not work out, let's not waste a million dollars on it, but we can, we can do, we can do experiments, right? That's the whole idea is that we do experiments to figure out what's working and then we can scale from there. Absolutely. So in, obviously you, I think you've had some people help you over the years to land where you're at. So reflecting back, Who's maybe an individual or two that was really influential on your career and helped the trajectory to where you are now? 
Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's hard to pinpoint just one or two individuals because I see so many people in my life that have been influential. And I think the lesson there is that ultimately we have people all around us. A lot of the people I would say are my biggest mentors. They probably don't even know that I think of them that way. Um, you know, they're not they're not people that I'm constantly reaching out to, but I'm quietly observing them. I'm watching them and I'm learning from their successes from their failures. I'm learning from their, how they deal with the challenges they face. And, and I try to model what I do after them. And sometimes I get the opportunity to share that with them and let them know, though, thank you. Thank you so much for the impact that you've had on me. And other times I don't, because I don't actually have a personal relationship with them, but I still am able to learn and grow through their example. Uh, so I have so many people <laughs> like that in my life um, you know, and then I have other people that are more approximate to me, you know, sure. where, where I'm working that I lean on, on a regular basis. But I, I think we need to look all around us for, and create our own kind of personal advisory board of, yeah. of people we know and trust that we can look to, uh, even if they don't know, we're, you know, we're thinking of them that way. It, we, we can leverage their learnings and, and kind of build up upon what they are doing successfully and and don't get me wrong any any chance we get we should try to communicate back our thanks oh, and our gratitude for the impact that people have in our life exactly a great example for me i had the pleasure of roy bridges being on the show uh, many episodes and and he was a genuine shuttle pilot an astronaut and his down-to-earth approach just how he viewed the work environment how to treat people I've still got notepads filled with some of his comments, and I don't refer to him daily, but I refer to him a lot. So, and I've made sure to thank him. That's a great comment. So when you find the people that are helping you in your trajectory, let them know. Yeah. Well, we're getting towards the end of this, and I knew this was going to happen, having a great guest like yourself. I don't know where the 30 minutes went. I think somebody's cheating on our sundial. Okay, for all my viewers that are really technical, I know I'm in a production studio, so the sun cannot shine on my sundial. Work with me anyway. So you just finished speaking at a big conference. You've done many of those. People are thrilled with what they already want to sign you up for the next three years. Hats are going there. They're chanting your name. As you go to leave the stage, what's two or three items you hope they write down to take back to their company and help them become the best leaders they can? Yeah, ultimately, each of us have to go through our own leadership development journey. It's one of the things I say in the introduction to my book. There's no one size fits all approach. There's no silver bullet. There's no easy answer to trying to become a dynamic, impactful leader. We just have to learn and grow and develop ourselves over time. And it takes consistency. It takes a regular, consistent effort over a sustained period of time to see that kind of movement and development in ourselves and how we impact those around us. Uh, and so start that journey today, uh, practice self-reflection, think about what you're doing, um, practice metacognition and, and consider how you're learning and how you're growing, set goals and learn and grow a little bit every day and try to develop meaningful relationships with those around you every day. If you do that, you will grow into a great leader. Uh, wow, there will be set, there will be setbacks. There will be hiccups. There will be things that don't go well. Yep. None of us are perfect. All of us are learning as we go. All of us are Absolutely. building the plane while we're flying it. Um, so don't be afraid of the journey because you know you don't know everything. Start the journey now, and before you know it, you, you're going to have lived a really 
fulfilled, love-filled life where you've had the opportunity to impact so many people around you. Yeah. And, and to me, I, I don't know if there's a better legacy because that phrase gets thrown out a lot to be able to help others and system, insist with the process they have. So, Doc, before, before we say goodbye, how do people get a hold of you? Yeah, the easiest way to get a hold of me is on LinkedIn. If you okay. just look up Jonathan H. Westover, uh, I'll pop right on up. There's not a lot of Jonathan Westovers <laughs> out there, so I'll pop up pretty quickly. Cool. I would love to connect with you on LinkedIn. Please feel free to check out my book on Amazon or other uh, major outlets. And I also run my own podcast uh, called the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, where I interview Perfect. professionals, and I would invite anyone to tune into that and to give it a listen. Excellent. And just big giant thumbs up on his new book. Rick, can you pull that book up one more time? You got that cover handy before we say goodbye. There, there's that visual aid once again. And check this book out when in your travels, The Alchemy of Truly Remarkable Leadership, Ordinary Everyday Actions That Produce Extraordinary Results. John, I want to thank you again for being with us. And I know you got a really busy Friday. I appreciate you fitness in there. You have a great weekend, and we'll be talking to you soon, sir. Thanks, you too. Thank you. The Alchemy of Truly Remarkable Leadership. Ordinary, everyday actions that produce extraordinary results. Consider how the nature of work has shifted over the past 50 years. With increased globalization, rapid technological advancement, and the shift in economic composition, the average job of today looks very different than the average job of 50 years ago. What will the jobs and organizations of tomorrow look like? Moreover, what does this all mean for organizational leaders? What are the core competencies and capabilities of organizations and their leadership that are prepared for continued disruption and geopolitical and socioeconomic shifts? Regardless of what the future holds, increasingly, leaders need to be socially minded, data-driven, decisive, champions of talent, and disruptors of the traditional notions of leadership, teams, organizations, and work. The alchemy of truly remarkable leadership will help you to explore your own leadership competencies and capabilities and consider ways to apply and implement them into your workplace and personal life. Check out Human Capital Innovations magazine, Human Capital Leadership. Human Capital Leadership is a free interactive e-magazine with the mission to help individuals, leaders, and organizations find innovative approaches to maximize their human capital potential. We publish issues quarterly in August, November, February, and May. Take a look at the latest issue and let us know what you think. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week. Check out our new weekly LinkedIn newsletter, Alchemizing Human Capital, exploring industry trends via original research and interviews with executives and thought leaders from across the globe. We look forward to having you join us.